the word of the Lord. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman uh, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word and and pray that you would uh, instruct us, be um, our teacher now and lead us into the heart of Christ and, and that we might understand the ways of his kingdom. And Lord, it is our great desire and joy to be a part of the kingdom of King Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as you can see today in the bulletin, uh, the the title of today's sermon is Ethnic Identity. And uh, what's fascinating about the story that I just read to you, this little story from Mark chapter 7, is that it's both uh, one of the main passages where Jesus is accused of being racist, And yet it's also the moment in the Gospels when Jesus turns his ministry from his own people group, the Jews, to open up the kingdom of God to the other nations of the world, to the Gentiles, the people that are not of his ethnic group. And so it's the moment when Jesus is both accused of being racist and yet it's it's the key anti-racist moment of the Gospels. And so I find it really a fascinating story. And I'll, and I'll show you what I mean by that. In this story, there's a, a, a woman who comes to Jesus who, who has a daughter who's possessed by a, a demon, and she's in a very vulnerable uh, state. And she asked Jesus to heal her daughter. And his response, maybe you saw that there in verse 27, where it said, Jesus says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So this woman is a foreigner to Jesus. Jesus is a Jew. She's a Gentile, Syrophoenician woman, and he calls her a dog, which, uh, uh, and that's what's seen as maybe a potentially racist uh, slur in this uh, this passage. But what's interesting is you look at the stories around this one in Mark chapter 7, and uh, uh, for example, last week, uh, Pastor Matt preached on the beginning of Mark chapter 7, where uh, Mark tells us that Jesus had declared all foods to be uh, clean. And uh, basically, what Jesus says it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean, but it's what comes out of your mouth that be- makes you unclean. But as you read through the rest of the New Testament, I don't have time to like, go into all of this, but it turns out that, that calling all foods clean was also a way of Jesus saying that it is not your ethnic identity that makes you unclean. 
And because food laws are often what caused a barrier between different ethnic groups, specifically the Jews and the Gentiles. They didn't eat together because of food. And so Jesus was basically opening the table to bring these different people groups together to eat, eat with one another. And so Jesus was uh, breaking down the dividing wall between the ethnic groups. And in fact, we're going to see in a couple weeks that there's going to be a story where Jesus takes uh, some loaves of bread and some fish and he feeds 4,000 people. And you're going to read that story and you say, well, didn't he just do that a couple chapters ago? He took some bread and fish and fed 5,000 people. Why does he do it twice? Well, in the first story, in, uh, it's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, which was a predominantly Jewish region, and he fed 5,000 people. And now there's a turn happening where he goes to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which was predominantly Gentile. So it's probably 5,000 Jews he fed and then 4,000 Gentiles, and he's basically saying that his kingdom is made up of both groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, together. So it's a multi-ethnic kingdom that Jesus is building. And structurally, in the gospel, this shift in Jesus' mission from the Jews to the Gentiles, it happens in this story with the faith of this poor woman that Jesus called a dog. She is the hinge of his whole mission. And as we'll see, Jesus highly esteems this woman like he does no one else in the Gospels. And so I think there are just real insights in this passage about how the Bible carefully handles the complicated question of ethnicity. And so today I want to uh, give, give us three uh, biblical principles that we learn from these few verses here in Mark chapter 7. This is what they are. That first, the Gospel does not erase our ethnic identity. But second, the gospel does relativize our ethnic identity. It doesn't erase it, but it does relativize it. It puts it in its place, second to our allegiance to God and his kingdom. And then lastly, the gospel makes Jesus the only solution to our ethnic differences. So the gospel does not erase our ethnic identity. The gospel does relativize our ethnic identity. And third, the gospel makes Jesus the only solution to our ethnic differences. So, three points for us this morning, and the first is this. The gospel does not erase our ethnic identity. Now, this is very related to, you know, the, many of the cultural conversations that are happening in uh, America right now. One of the big questions in racial discussions is around uh, colorblindness. Uh, someone in my D group said this week colorblindness is out right now. And, um, and, if you, and what colorblindness is referring to is um, Martin Luther King in his famous I Have a Dream speech says, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. So colorblindness, the idea is that we don't really even see people's kind of ethnicity and color. We just look simply at their character. There's debate. Is that really what MLK meant? And I will say that, you know, race and ethnicity are, are deeply tied together, you know, and it depends on who you talk to about how you define them. Race, I think of generally as your skin color and your kind of biological descent, whereas ethnicity is usually tied to your race, but it includes all the cultural realities that come along with uh, your, your race. So it's kind of a, a, a broader uh, category. And I think that the, you know, colorblindness is, is related to another question, specifically about America, is you know, whether we should envision America as a melting pot 
um, of ethnicity. You know, where basically you have all these different immigrants who come together and, and their, their ethnicities kind of blend together, where normally they were all these different flavors, and then they kind of turn into a beige brown kind of uniformity that's kind of boring. And people say, no, you know, America should not be a beige uniformity. It's more of a patchwork, you know, where it's like a quilt, where there's all these different things that are kind of knit together. And, you know, we have these different ethnicities that, that live in harmony with one another. And, uh, and this raises a problem because on the one hand, the melting pot suggests more unity because we're all together, we're all alike. Um, but if we have a patchwork, how do we not become tribal and have these enclaves of our uh, ethnic group that are really all this hostility between these different kind of um, um, groups who have just kind of closed in on themselves? What is unifying and holding us together? It's a major question in American culture in our day, and it's actually one of the biggest questions addressed in the Bible as well. And so the question is, what can we learn from Jesus in this passage? Well, I'll, I want to point out a couple things. So the first is, I would, my sense from this passage was that Jesus was not colorblind. That Jesus was not colorblind. And again, you see that there in verse 27. He says, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And Jesus is, is using a parable here. And uh, in the parable, the children are the children of Israel. They're God's chosen people. And the dogs are the Gentile, non-Jewish people. And the first thing to say is Jesus doesn't sees people based on their ethnicity and their nationality. That's a part of their identity. That's part of how he deals with us. It's part of how he viewed this woman that came to him. And I think this is helpful for us to understand as a church. And there are a lot of Christians that are pointing this out. You know, I'll give you a couple examples. Um, one is I have a, a close friend. He's a Presbyterian pastor. And he's a Jew who had uh, become uh, a Christian in his 20s. Uh, went into the ministry, and he's talked to me about how, you know, in the evangelical church, there is a kind of disappearance of the appreciation of what it means to be a Jew. And in fact, there's a whole theology, it's called replacement theology, that reads the Bible as saying, well, in the Old Testament, the Jews, the Israelites, were God's chosen people, and now they've been replaced by the church, which is now God's chosen people. And actually, if you read the New Testament, though, it doesn't talk that way. You know, uh, if you're a Gentile in the New Testament, it says that you are a wild olive branch that have been engrafted into Israel. Jesus is the center of Israel and the king of Israel, and he's actually welcoming foreigners into Israel. So it's not that Israel has disappeared. It's that we have been brought into God's chosen people. You know, we become children of Abraham by faith. And so... Um, some people might say, oh, well, what about what Paul says in Galatians 3? Paul says, you know, if you're in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. And it sounds like he is erasing the ethnic distinctions within the church. But you know what he says right after that? If you're in Christ, there's neither male nor female. Are we going to say that when you become a Christian, you no longer become male or female, and your gender just kind of disappears, and that has no importance in the church? Well, we know in other places... In the New Testament, that is not true. And so um, the church is not a place where ethnicity disappears. The New Testament repeatedly affirms that the kingdom of God 
is one people comprised of Jews and Gentiles without losing their ethnic distinction are unified in Christ. But there are also, you know, a similar thing as has been said, you know, by uh, 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 black Christians in America. Um, you know, over the last generation, there's been a large um, push for multi-ethnic churches. And uh, maybe some of you have been a part of the kind of multi-ethnic um, movement, which I think is well-intentioned. Uh, you know, we see the kingdom of God as diverse and people from all these ethnic groups and one people of God. And we say, we want our churches to look like that. But many black Christians say, well, yeah, we tried to come into multi-ethnic churches, but culturally, these multi-ethnic churches are really white. Like, that's how they are. And so we're having to kind of fit into this uncomfortable setting that doesn't really fit us. And many of them are saying, you know, I'm going to go back to a black church. I'm black, and that's culturally where I fit, and I want to be a part of that. And, you know, maybe less of the white people are coming over to black churches. Now, I, I couldn't make a judgment about that, but I think it's a fair point. Whenever you say, oh, there's just a neutral culture, there's no culture here. It means that actually the dominant culture in a church is just unspoken. Our church has a culture to it. We're kind of this Presbyterian Bellingham fusion, you know, that we are. And some, most people are like, yeah, I like that. I vibe with the, uh, the Bellingham Presbyterian thing. There are people coming to our church and they're like, this is tough for me. This is awkward. It doesn't really fit like who I am. Maybe it's culturally of how I've grown up or where I've come from. And I think it's okay to say that doesn't feel right, you know? Or it's even okay to say I like being with people that share my, my ethnicity. It's easier, and I feel at home. That is not wrong. We don't have to pretend that it's not a difficulty. Now, of course, we always have to be hospitable and welcome. Anyone is welcome here. We want to make it hospitable for anyone. But God is taking distinct people groups and not erasing their ethnicity and by unifying the diverse people groups under the lordship of Christ. So, the gospel does not erase our ethnic identity, and, and the first thing we learn from Jesus is, I, I would say he's not colorblind. He see nationality and who your people group is a part of who you are. Uh, but he also doesn't treat everyone exactly the same. And the second thing we learn from Jesus is that Jesus refers to most of us as dogs. Jesus refers to most of us as dogs. And what I mean by most of us is anyone who is not an Israelite or not a Jew, which is most of us in this room. And, uh, and he calls this Syrophoenician woman a dog. And um, now, you know, I have a cute little dog named Poppy in, in my house. And she comes and sits at the table next to our daughter Molly, because Molly's the one who slips her food at dinner. She knows which child to sit next to. And so... You know, I wouldn't be insulted to say, uh, for someone to say that I was like Poppy. Uh, is that what Jesus had in mind when he called this woman a dog? Most references to dogs in the Bible are not positive uh, depictions. Jews, you know, viewed dogs as unclean animals. Um, they often referred to foreigners as dogs. And so I will say it is surprising to find this statement on Jesus' lips. But this woman's response is really interesting because she doesn't respond with ethnic pride. She doesn't say, how dare you call me a dog? Instead, she's very witty and she's humble and she starts debating with Jesus. She says in verse 28, 
But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She embraces the label of a dog. Now, I couldn't help thinking of uh, this as I was preparing the sermon. How much would it help all of us non-Jews in our culture to view our ethnicity that way, embrace the label of a dog? How does this passage describe, you know, being a white European? Uh, We are dogs at the side of the table, uh, hoping that there will be some overflow of the blessing from the children of Abraham that we could share in the blessing of God. That's how we're described. And how does it view Asian cultures and Hispanic cultures and black cultures the same way? And I would import into that that I think dogs are wonderful. They're delightful. Uh, One of the things that we love about dogs is that dogs are not proud. You know, we might be glad that Jesus didn't say we were all cats. Then that would be a different situation. They don't have a high view of themselves. They do not take themselves too seriously, but they still love being dogs. And uh, and that's how we should view our ethnicity, as delightful, celebrated. We want it. We're at home in it, but not hardened with pride. And I think a good test of that is if we can laugh at our own culture. And, you know, your culture is like your family. And if you can't laugh at your family, you don't get your family. Like, family is quirky, and you love it, and you feel at home there, and yet it's strange. And that's how we should view our ethnicity, is not taking it too seriously. And I think this humility around our ethnicity really leads to a second point. So first, the gospel does not erase our ethnicity. Jesus is not colorblind, but he does call most ethnic groups of the world dogs, and I wonder if we should consider embracing that designation. But second, the gospel does relativize ethnic identity. The gospel does relativize our ethnic identity. It means it puts it in relativity to our deepest identity in Christ and obedience to Christ in the kingdom of God. And the issue around racism is is when an ethnic group elevates their ethnic identity above their loyalty to God and and to Christ. This is an ethnic pride that our ethnicity becomes absolute. You can't question anything about my ethnicity. It can't be criticized. Um, And we don't engage critically with our our culture. And let me just, uh, you know, qualify that briefly. You know, the word pride has really different shades of meaning. I think there is a, a form of pride that's really not sinful. You know, if, you're, if you have a child who gets straight A's and you think, wow, you know, you really worked hard and that gives me pleasure to, to see you flourishing and your schoolwork, that pleasure in, in the success of your children is, is not a sin. But it's very subtle when that turns into you get a sense of validation as a parent you feel a little better than other families or parents, and you, you know, your sense of self-justification is because my child is doing well. Now all of a sudden it's turned into pride and it's a sin. So there's a subtle uh, difference there. And uh, you know, in this passage, when Jesus calls this woman a dog, commentators have made various attempts to try to soften what Jesus said. And you know, some say, oh, you know, he didn't mean it. He had a twinkle in his eye when he said it. He's like, you know, it's just a joke, right, to the woman. And they kind of had an inside joke going. And she understood that he wasn't really calling her a dog. And I, I think it's very hard to honestly read this passage that way. 
you know, in Matthew's version of this story, I mean, she is kneeling before him, pleading with him, help me. She is desperate, and he dismisses her as a dog. And, um, but I will say that Jesus makes one slight suggestion in his comment that opens the door a crack for this woman. And you see again in verse 27, you see what it says. Let the children be fed first. And by saying first, he's mean, well, if they're being fed first, it means there's a second. And that the, he's going to the Jews first, but there's going to be a time to feed the outsiders. They're going to be welcomed in. They're going to be fed. They're going to be brought to the table. And uh, she picks up on this. And, of course, if you read in the New Testament, that's exactly what happens. You know, in Jesus' ministry, he goes to the Jews first, and then he goes to the Gentiles. The book of Acts the apostles do the same thing. They go to the Jews first, and then they go to the Gentiles. They come to a Roman city, and they go to the synagogue first, and then they go to the pagans and start sharing the gospel with them. And Paul says the same things in Romans 1, that the gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. So Jesus is insisting on this ethnic distinction in the priority of the Jews, but it's amazing how she responds to it. In verse 28, again, but she answered him, yes, Lord. She is the only person in the whole Gospel of Mark who calls Jesus Lord. And she has uniquely come to understand his authority and her need for him. And she's basically saying, yes, I'm not an Israelite, but I can still have you as my Lord. Christ is more supreme than my ethnicity. And so the gospel allegiance to Jesus was relativizing her ethnicity. And so my identity, you know, is if you're... English or uh, Korean or Mexican or Australian, my ethnicity has to be brought into obedience to Christ. And my ethnicity was given to me in order to glorify Christ. So it needs to be transformed. It needs to be redeemed and to be brought into obedience of his kingdom. And this is exactly what happens in this passage. You know, Jesus seems so harsh. He's calling this woman a dog. But his response to her in verse 29, you see how it says, and he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And again, in Matthew, his statement is even stronger. He says, "O woman, great is your faith. And uh, it turns out there are only two places in the gospel where Jesus commends people for their faith. I mean, Jesus does not hand out, you know, Trophies for faith. I mean, he, to be commended, you, remember, you know how he talks to his disciples all the time. Oh, you of little faith. I mean, he says to all the Jews, you faithless generation. He does not tell people that he's impressed with their faith. There's only two people. One was a Roman centurion, who's a Gentile, and this woman, who he says, great is your faith. Jesus' harshness, it's almost the person that he's most harsh with, is the person that he's drawing an incredible faith and wisdom and wit and intelligence out of her. And, you know, if I could just make a side comment about this. Some of you have experienced Jesus this way. You've been at a point in your life where you came on your knees, vulnerable, helpless. Jesus, please help me. And you were like, if this is one time in my life you're going to hear my prayer, now is it. And what you experienced was a statement like this. You're a dog. Get away from me, dog. That was the harshness that you experienced. I think that is an experience that some people have, that maybe all of us have at various times in our life, with Jesus. 
But what was he doing in this passage? He knew what he was drawing out of her. And she came back and he said, but I know your promises. I know who you are. I know God's plans through Abraham. I know what you're doing in your mission. And I, and I follow you. And he says, amazing is your faith. And there are things that he wants to draw out of you as well. He wants you to debate with him. He wants you to have to take his promises and say them back to him and say, this is who you are. And through that debate, he's going to draw faith out of you. He has his purposes. And so at the heart of this passage is the faith of this woman. And race and ethnicity must always be relativized by faith in Jesus. Racism is ultimately a sin problem. Racism is idolatry. When the ordering of our loyalties is out of whack, we're more loyalty to our ethnic identity than to our identity in Christ. And the only thing that can overcome racism is faith in Jesus Christ. And so that leads to our final point. So first, we've seen that the gospel does not erase our ethnic identity. Jesus is not colorblind, but he also calls us to um, affirm our ethnicity with humility, you know, calling all the Gentile peoples of the world dogs. But second... The gospel does relativize our ethnic identity, and by calling Jesus Lord like this woman by faith, we put our ethnicity in obedience and service to Christ. But lastly, the gospel makes Jesus the only solution to our ethnic differences. The gospel makes Jesus the only solution to our ethnic differences. And I'm going to tell you, let me just give you three quick reasons why that's true. Okay, the first is that Jesus is the one who welcomes foreigners. And this, you know, Jesus was a rabbi, and he's the Jewish Messiah. And, you know, he is the king of the Jews, and there are all kinds of reasons why this conversation should have never been happening. Not only is this a woman coming and talking to a rabbi, not only is she a Gentile, but she has a demon-possessed daughter. And you'd be thinking, what have you been doing that got your daughter demon-possessed? What kind of unclean idol have you been worshiping that brought you this unclean spirit. And Jesus was not concerned with the, the racial conventions that should have kept this woman at a distance. He welcomed her. He loved her. That's what Jesus does. He welcomes a foreigner. And that's it. That he calls us to be the same way. That's the hospitality of God's people in his church. We're always welcoming in the people who are different than us. So Jesus welcomes the foreigner, but also Jesus goes to the foreigner. And you might think, oh, you know, he waited for her to come to him. Not true. How does this passage start? Verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are Gentile regions. Jesus went there. He went to her before she ever came to him. That's how it always is with all of us. And Jesus is still doing that today. He's sending his disciples to every nation, every ethnic group on the planet to say, I want to bring the love of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the eternal life in Jesus, peace with God to all people. And again, we have to have that same mentality. You know, just this last week, we, our, uh, our presbytery, which is the group of uh, regional churches in our, our denomination, was having a meeting, and I, I had dinner with a a guy named Indra, who's a, a ruling elder of an Indonesian church in Seattle. And, and his church is the only ethnic church in our presbytery. I mean, our presbytery is a very white uh, uh, presbytery. And he's been pushing us to say, you've got to be intentional to make pathways. If we want to plant churches and train pastors in, in you know, non-white 
communities, we have to be intentional and thoughtful about it. We have to care about it. You have to pursue it. Just as Jesus said, you know what? I'm going to go out of my way up into Tyre and Sidon. It's not the most convenient place to go to go into the Gentile world so I can uh, bring the gospel to, to new peoples. So Jesus not only welcomes the foreigner, but he goes to the foreigner. But the last thing we see is that Jesus is deeply loved by the foreigner. And part of the reason that I'm convinced that Jesus is the only one who can reconcile the diverse peoples of the world is because no one in history has been so loved by such diverse peoples. I mean, even today, who else is so loved by diverse peoples like Jesus Christ? I mean, even the other face of the world, you know, they tend to be concentrated in, you know, certain cultural regions, whether it's, you know, the gods of Hinduism seem to be concentrated in, in India, or Buddhism's concentrated in China, or, or even Islam is, is really in that 1040 window. It's the North Africa and, and the Middle East and, and the regions around India, which is, of course, a vastly diverse people groups in that region. But still, no one is like Jesus Christ, where the church is basically uniformly distributed over the continents of the world, in North America, South America, in Europe, in Africa, and in Asia. Where's the center of Christianity in the church? It's definitely not among white, white people. At least 85% of the Christians on, in the planet right now are non-white. Um, and this next millennium, the third millennium, is going to be a time where, the, where Christendom is not going to be in Europe. It's going to be in the majority world. Jesus is loved by all kinds of people. And so even as the church, even as our presbytery struggles to become more diverse, Jesus is not struggling to do it. He is loved by all people, and we too should love him for that. And it's incredible to think that Jesus' work among all those billions of diverse peoples around the globe began with this woman to whom he said, great is your faith. And it's only because of him that we can believe that the Bible's vision of the future is actually possible. And so I'll close with these words from Revelation 7. Apostle John said, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for the, the beauty of your word, the wisdom of your word, and Lord, in a world filled with people claiming to be wise, claiming to know how to bring healing to the nations, Lord, we are gathered here in worship to say that our trust and confidence is in Jesus Christ alone. The one without sin, the one who's conquered sin, the one who has made peace. And Jesus, we pray for your kingdom to come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, that you would bring peace to the nations of the world, and start with your church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.